If you have joined us in the last few minutes from our streaming broadcasts, it is good to have you. And if you have your Bible at home this morning, and if you're here in the main sanctuary, can you turn with me please to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning for our scripture reading. Tucked away towards the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 4, written by the Apostle Peter, and we are looking at chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. We've been steadily working our way through the epistle of Peter, and we come to this final section of chapter 4. Peter, in writing, writes these words. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About ten days ago, I heard from CDC that they were saying that when you wear a mask, it helps stop the transmission of COVID-19 by about 53-54%. And so some in the medical community, epidemiologists and others, were suggesting, in fact, that we should wear a double mask. And so this week I thought I would step up, do my part, try and flatten the curve. So there we are. Uh, And you just want to go for it where you can. You don't want to be difficult or don't want to, in fact, help in any way. So there we are. And strangely enough, In wearing the double mask, no one has approached me since I started wearing it. So clearly it works. Clearly it works. So if you're thinking about it this week, this is the time to do it. I've broken the ice for you. Now there's possibilities there. Now, talking of memorable weeks, I wanted to share with you this morning a news headline that comes out of London, was dated November 7th, uh, back in 2008. And it reads like this. A 65-year-old private pilot was left almost entirely blind when he suffered a stroke while flying solo at more than 5,000 feet. He was eventually guided to a safe landing after the pilot of a Royal Air Force plane talked the stricken flyer down. The incident occurred when private pilot Jim O'Neill was flying his single-engine Cessna from his local airport in Prestwick to Colchester in south-east England. Mr O'Neill was about midway through his 350-mile flight when he radioed for help, saying he could no longer read the cockpit instruments. 
Wing Commander Paul Gerard, already airborne in a single-engine aircraft used to train RAF pilots, was directed to approach Mr. O'Neill's plane and fly alongside him for just around 40 minutes at a distance of 150 feet. Wing Commander Gerard used his voice to guide down Mr. O'Neill by instructing him when to turn left or right or when to lower the nose of the aircraft. He also instructed him one by one to complete his pre-check landing. After eight failed attempts at landing, Mr. O'Neill's aircraft landed almost perfectly and came to a halt towards the end of the runway. The air traffic controllers who recorded the vocal exchange between Mr. O'Neill and Commander Gerard played the tape at a press conference several days later. I cannot see the runway, said Mr. O'Neill at one point. It's right under your nose, replied Wing Commander Gerard. Spokesman for the RAF commented at the press conference, we are not used to shepherding blind pilots, and so this event was absolutely amazing. And, of course, he's right. Talk about a memorable occasion when suddenly you were blind while flying solo. And you can imagine what that was like. Can you imagine the panic? Can you imagine the tension, the sense of how on earth am I going to get out of this? And he is, for all intents and purposes, flying in the dark. I don't think any of us would ever want to be there. And yet there might be occasions in our lives when we feel as if we are flying in the dark. It may be that we find ourselves going through the early stages of divorce. And you have no idea how it's going to work out. You don't know how it will unfold in the, next, the course of the next year. And you are, for all intents and purposes, flying in the dark. Or it could be your child is critically ill. A spouse has just passed away. A parent is wrestling with dementia. You find yourself in a downward spiral of drug or alcohol, lost a job, uncertain about your future and what is coming next, and you are saying, for all intents and purposes, I'm flying in the dark, and I don't know what is coming next. Ever been there? And usually, events like that happen at the worst of all possible times. Wouldn't you agree? Midlife, mid-semester, mid-career perhaps, flying in the dark. And this morning as we come to the second half of 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to hear Peter talk about how to respond to painful trials. Trials that are so difficult, so complex, there is every possibility they're going to overwhelm Peter's readers. And if you've been in a situation like that, this passage may well be just for you this morning. And so Peter begins to express to them how to navigate these uncharted waters. And for some of us, it may have been that this week we have moved from the carpool line to a car wreck. It may be that we're moving from a job change to joint custody, 
tempted to feel at times our life is overwhelming, it's inconsequential, we're going nowhere. Please remember this. Who Peter is writing to? Peter is writing to a group of people who have been persecuted for their faith. In other words, they have been physically abused and attacked, had to leave their town or city for doing exactly what we are doing this morning. No choice of their own. Talk about having a sense of impotency, frustration. Suddenly they have to leave a city or a town move to another region, uproot their kids, find a new job, a new place to live, new friends, new community. Talk about flying dark. That's exactly where they are. And way back, about the halfway mark in the first century, persecution begins to break out Initially in a localized persecution, but eventually throughout the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what these folks were caught up in. And this morning I've tried to truncate this a little, summarize it for you, because there's a lot of detail here. So please bear with me, but I think you'll get a sense of what's going on. On the 19th to 27th of July in the year AD 64, Rome was destroyed by a great fire. Only four sections out of 14 remained intact. Emperor Nero was blamed by the Roman populace, who in turn blamed the Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus explains what happened. And he writes, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Accordingly, arrest was first made of all who pled guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were attacked by wild animals and perished in the Roman Colosseum, or were nailed to a cross, were doomed to the flames and burnt on the street to serve as a nightly illumination in the city when daylight had expired. Can you imagine? And then Peter writes to them and he says in this section, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now can you imagine receiving that letter from the Apostle Peter and discovering that here is Peter who knows that you have been persecuted, who knows you've had to root your entire family, move them from Rome across the other side of the empire to what's called modern Turkey, establish a new home. All of it is outside of your control. And can you imagine how they feel when he says, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though it were something strange, but rejoice? Really? Peter, is that what you're telling us? Rejoice? Smile anyway? Just keep on praising the Lord? It doesn't really matter. Some kind of mindless mirth? Is that what Peter is saying here? 
And when you read it, it's extraordinary that Peter would write in these terms. And it's not so much a paradox as an absurdity. And you're saying, Peter, come on. Is that the hope you're offering? Rejoice anyway? Is that what you're telling us this morning? Grin and bear it? The Apostle Paul writes in a similar fashion. And it's always a good principle to tuck away in the back of your mind, and we mentioned this last Sunday morning, that whenever you come across a passage of Scripture that seems difficult, hard, a little complicated, complex, you're not quite sure what to make of it, and you're thinking, wait a minute, what does this really mean? Tell me what it means in my life today, in the circumstances I'm living in. Help me grasp and understand this. And if you come across a passage like this one from Peter, which seems odd, rejoice in the middle of suffering, come on. Find another passage of Scripture. If it deals with similar themes, ask yourself, can it shed light on the passage I'm wrestling with? And so this morning in Romans chapter 5, many of you will be familiar with this, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes in a similar fashion. Almost identical. And he says, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces what? And here it comes. Perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And notice again what Paul is saying. He's talking about rejoicing in the midst of suffering. And boy, is that hard. And then he explains why. And if you take notes in your Bible or you're watching from home and you want to write in the margin or maybe at the foot of the page, it's worth putting beside 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and so on, Romans 5, 3 and 5. So at some point in the future, you can look back and reference it. And right in there... Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character provides hope. And here is what he's telling us. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Notice what Paul is saying. He's saying exactly the same as Peter slightly clearer understanding, I would argue, and it's this. Whenever you're going through those difficult days when you cannot understand what God is doing, why on earth would God take your job from you? Why would he put you in a position of having a terminally ill parent, find yourself in the middle of a divorce? What is he doing? What is going on here? I notice the end of the verse... Because God has poured out his love into our hearts. Do you see that? Poured out his love. Not just saying, well, I'll give you enough to get through this time. And here they come again. Maybe I should bless them again. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. Please remember who you are. And remember how much he has loved you and he pours that love into you that's your motivation that's your desire that is changed and matured by him as you grow in your faith now look at it again 
as a result of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, that enabling grace and power, you can rejoice in your sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces perseverance. What do we mean by perseverance? Perseverance means this. You are flying blind and you absolutely refuse to give up. You don't know what the rest of the year holds for you. You don't know how the job situation is going to unfold. You don't know about the marital situation. You don't know how it's going to look in six months with a parent with dementia and you have no control over the situation or circumstance. You don't know. But perseverance means this. When you are flying blind, when you're in the darkness, you keep going and trusting him for all that's to come. Not just today, but for your future and all that that future holds. That's the point he's making. And that's why Paul is saying almost in an identical sense, he is saying what? Let me go back and remind you. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Is he talking about the suffering of Christ at Calvary? No, he's talking about suffering for seeking to live out your faith in a Christ-like manner day by day by day despite the horror of the circumstances you find yourself in. That's exactly what he's saying right here. That's what's going on. I think it was the last thing Peter's original readers expected to read. It was the last thing they wanted to hear. But as he begins to unpack it, and we're about to see it, it begins to make sense. And so he's encouraging them, just as Paul did, To keep going, to persevere. And notice what comes next. Perseverance leads to what? Character. Character. What does character mean? It means this. That when Peter and Paul are writing, he's saying to them, please understand this. That God is more interested in who you are than what you will ever do for him. Now let me say that again, because that's not easy to pick up in the first time round. He is more interested in who you are than what you will ever do for him. Because he's shaping and fashioning us. He's changing us, character, mind, heart and soul. He's maturing us. He's bringing us to the next level in our relationship with him. And character means this, at least least. Christ-like character means this. Now, I think most of us have heard the old phrase, and it's right, of course, that a crisis doesn't make character. It brings out character within us. And that's absolutely the case. It doesn't create character. It what? It shapes and fashions the character that is already there. And if we're thinking of character, what are we thinking? As Christians, we're thinking of Christ-like character. We're thinking of honesty and integrity. We're thinking of accountability and transparency. We're thinking of holiness and prayer. Those are the character traits that count. And he's saying, remember, perseverance leads to character. Character leads to what? Hope. Hope. 
and it will not disappoint because God is right there in the middle with us. Character matters. It matters incredibly so. So as Paul begins to take us down that road, he's saying, please understand this, that you can trust him regardless of the circumstance. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. Do you remember last week when we talked about 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, you are also like a spiritual home being built brick by brick by brick. Do you remember I used the illustration of remodeling a kitchen or a bedroom or somewhere around the house? And you get to the point, you start off a new project with great enthusiasm, wanting it to be better, wanting it to be refined, wanting it to be productive. And then there's one delay after another, after another, after another. And in the case of the kitchen, we talked about unforeseen delays, setbacks, things not working out the way we'd hoped. And that is what Peter is saying. Notice again, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial. Do not be surprised at the days when you take a stand for Christ, longing to grow in your faith, wrestle with the conditions that lie before you. Don't expect it to be one blessing after another after another. It's not going to be every morning, at a boy. keep going. We never in the Christian life simply flow from one blessed maturing experience to the other. It takes the hard work of daily discipleship. Don't be surprised if it doesn't work out the first time. Don't be surprised if God uses it to mature us and craft us and shape us and fashion us into the people he's calling us to be. That's exactly what's happening here. Exactly what's happening. Because he's creating within us characters, characteristic traits of honesty and integrity, of love and grace, of prayer and holiness. That's the point he's making. Don't be surprised. That's how you are growing. That's how you're growing. And what does he say next? Rejoice that you participate in your sufferings for Christ as you move forward. And then he says, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, if you are blessed for the spirit of glory and if God rests upon you, you are blessed. Now, if you were with us Wednesday night when we were studying the book of Romans, and I may have hinted at this last Sunday, whenever you take a stand for your faith, Please expect opposition. People who know you best will look at you and say, there's something different about you. What's been happening? I see you at the church again. I see you going to a Bible study. I see your character changing. What is going on here? Are you going to be one of those Jesus people? Is that where you're going? You'll face opposition. I think most of us know it in our own life. If we wrestle with a particular sin and we seek to say, okay, I'm done with it, I've had enough, it's going to stop right here. And it doesn't. And you may be sitting here this morning, you may be watching from home and you're saying, Richard, I think I've understood most of what you're saying. 
But I want you to know this. It's not the circumstance of my life that's causing me problems. It's not the challenges I'm facing. It's not going from the carpool to a car wreck, from job interview to joint custody. It's not the circumstances that are causing me problems. The problem for me is deeply personal. And you, Richard, you haven't touched on it yet. You've talked about the external circumstances and the daily challenges, and I get all of that. But Richard, you're frustrating me because the thing I need an answer on the most is this, that there is a particular sin in my life. I cannot get over it. I've tried and I've prayed and it's going nowhere. And then after a good Sunday morning at church, I think, okay, that's it. I'll tackle it this week. I'll get over it. I'll get victory on it. I know how to do it. And then by Tuesday, you find yourself in the old pattern again. So please hear this. That for so many of us, it's not circumstance. It's not situation. It's our personal sin. It's the power of that sin. It's enticement. It's deceptive. It's enslaving. It is addictive. And it calls out to us and promises so much, but delivers so little. And whenever that sin comes knocking at your door, please remember that with suffering, God in pouring out His Holy Spirit into our lives creates within us perseverance. And so when you see it coming, close the door. When it knocks on the door, you lock the key. You bolt at the bottom, then the top, and you resist the temptation. That's the point. And how do we do it? How could we possibly? Because God has poured His Holy Spirit into our lives. That's the point. That's the point. And the enticing, enslaving, addictive power of sin can be beaten. That's why Peter is writing in these terms. That's why Paul writes in terms of perseverance and character and hope. It's not a dead end. Victory over it is possible. But please remember this. Back in the 19th century, long time ago, Henry Law, in a small book, looking at Genesis, wrote these words. And they're sobering words. And talking of temptation and sin and Satan, he writes this. He never slumbers, never is weary, never relents, never abandons hope. He deals his blows alike at childhood's weaknesses, youth's inexperience, manhood's strength, and the totterings of age. He watches to ensnare the morning thought. He departs, not with the shades of night. By his legions, he is everywhere at all times. He enters the palace, the hut, the fortress, the camp, the fleet. He lurks whenever every chamber and every dwelling, every pew of every sanctuary. He is busy with the busy. He hurries about with the active. He sits by each bed of sickness and whispers into each dying ear. As the spirit quits the tenement of clay, he still draws his bow with unrelenting rage. Unrelenting rage. Satan will want to take you out day after day after day after day. And it's only when, by the grace of God, you can say, no, I am 
absolutely not going there. I'm going to stand firm in my faith. I don't care about the circumstances of my life in that sense. And I don't care about the temptation and sin. I will stand for Christ this day. And please jot this down. I have found this to be the most singularly helpful verse in my Christian life when it comes to temptation. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 10.13. It is a spectacular verse. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. Do you see it? No temptation except that which is common Everybody has similar kinds of temptations. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Most of us don't believe the latter part of that. We like the first part. We like the part that God is faithful. We like the part that everyone struggles with temptation. We like the part that you'll not be tempted beyond what you can bear, but I'm not convinced we believe the latter part. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And do you know what that means? That means this. That means do the hard work of daily discipleship. That means growing and maturing in your faith. That means resisting the sin and temptation. That means holding on to the promise that he will provide a way out because he is faithful. Why? Because he's poured the love of his Holy Spirit into your heart. And the next time you are flying blind and you don't know what the future holds and you're fearful and uncertain and thinking I cannot possibly land this by myself guess what you're right because if you slow down long enough and seek his presence and his tender touch you will hear his voice talking you down That's why Peter is writing in these terms. That's why he's saying, don't think of this as being unusual. In fact, see it the opposite way. Keep your eyes on him. He's right there for you. He'll provide a way out for you. And in the process, he will mature your character. He will give you the ability to persevere. And slowly, 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 he'll talk you down. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for all that it means to us and how it speaks into our lives. Help us, please, this coming week to open up the pages of 1 Peter chapter 4 again, to read it, to dwell there, to go back over it as you shape and craft our hearts and minds and souls. Father, grant to us this week the ability to persevere. And out of that perseverance, character. And from character, hope. Help us please to be willing to step up and do the hard work of discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.